us. And I thought, please help us this evening to understand your word. Please strengthen and encourage us that we hold fast to Jesus to the very end. I'm going to tell you a story that's um, it's very upsetting to me. I've told it a couple of times before, but I just, I just can't let it go. I'm a person who believes in finishing what you start. And most things in my life that I've started, I've finished. But this was a time when I got so exhausted that I had to give up. The year was 1982. I remember it like it was yesterday. I was 14 years old. At school, they made an announcement. If anyone would like to go in the Hawkesbury Canoe Classic, they can sign up. I was one of those kids who'd have a go at anything. I thought I don't mind a bit of canoeing. I'd done it once or twice before, and so I signed up. I then went to the one training session. They dug out an old kayak for me from the schoolroom at the school. As it happened, it was a white water kayak, flat bottoms, no rudder. They chucked it in the little dam at school. I hopped in and had a paddle around for five minutes, and that was it. I was ready to go. Now, as you may or may not know, the Hawkesbury Canoe Classic is a 111-kilometre canoe marathon. You go basically all the way up the Hawkesbury River until you get to the ocean. So on the day, I got to the race, hopped in the school kayak, and off I went, paddling away furiously. Now. I know what they say about a bad workman blaming his tools, but the kayak was pretty shonky. Right? It really was not much good. As I said, it was old, it was flat bottom, it had no rudder. As I said, I was going with the tire, and that wasn't too bad. I could sort of keep it in a reasonably straight line. But after a few hours, the tide turned, and I just could not get that kayak to go straight. It kept spinning around, going around in circles, side to side, zigzagging. Anyway, night fell, it was freezing cold, and there came a point about the 41 kilometre mark where I just could not go on. I was exhausted, so frustrated with that kayak that I couldn't get it to go on a straight line, and I just, just kind of gave up. Thing is, I was in the middle of the Hawkesbury River, not near anything or anyone. Uh, second last in the race was probably 20 kilometres ahead of me by this stage. Uh, I was on my own in the middle of the Hawkesbury River. It was night time. I was wet. I was cold. Uh, I struggled to keep paddling, but I could not make any headway against the tide. I was going nowhere. Uh, gradually, hypothermia started to set in, started to shiver and feel weak, and I just wanted to go to sleep. But then in the distance, I saw a light. It was one of the race stewards. Paddled up to me, saw that I was in real, real trouble, real danger, and so he threw me a rope that was attached to his kayak, and he dragged me to the next station, where I was given medical attention and uh, some hot drinks and wrapped up in blankets to deal with the hypothermia. Lucky, to be honest, lucky to be alive. Nearly 40 years later, I still feel upset about it. <laughs> I still feel tempted every time I hear the mention of the Hawkesbury River, I've really got to get in and do that marathon and finish it properly. But I have to say, as an overweight, unfit 51-year-old, I would definitely die in the process if I tried it again. Uh, to, to me, this is a very upsetting story, a, a story at a time when I got so exhausted that I had to give up. 
Uh, sometimes I feel that way about the Christian life. The Christian life is not easy, is it? It's, it's a bit of a marathon. It keeps showing up, it goes on and on and on. It does mean sacrifice and, 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 and it can mean conflict. For me, I have to say, that's the thing that really just sucks the life and joy out of my Christian experience. Conflict. A conflict from non-Christians who think I'm an idiot. Uh, even sadly, conflict from other Christians. I hate conflict, just love peace, but I find conflict exhausting. Well, as we've heard many times through this series, this letter is written to a group of people who are facing very significant conflict for their Christian faith. Remember some of the things that they're facing? Uh, public insult and persecution. Some of them have been put in jail. Some of them have had their property confiscated, all because they're Christians, just simply because they put their trust in Jesus. These readers are facing conflict, and the danger is, it's wearing them out. The author uses some pretty vivid language here to describe how they're going. The NIV translates it there in verse 3 as, Grow weary and lose heart. The danger of growing weary and lose heart. Let me give you a very literal translation. He says, uh, so that you will not become sick in your soul and go limp. Come sick in your soul and go limp. So it's not an English expression by any means, but it's a very vivid picture, isn't it? You're facing conflict, you're facing trouble for your faith, you're getting in trouble, it goes on and on and on, until eventually your heart, your soul is so just worn out and sick with worry that you just go, Ugh, I can't do it anymore, enough, I give up. on the Hawkesbury River. The author is worried for his readers. He doesn't want them to get to this point of exhaustion. And so he starts off by telling them to think about Jesus. Remember in chapter 11, he, he, he told them all these examples of people through the ages who made it to the end, kept on going to the end, and then it culminated with Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author of the for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. He says, I want you to think about Jesus because he suffered way more than you'll ever suffer. But he endured, kept going, pressed on, even to death. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 3. Have a look at me. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 3. Consider him, this Jesus, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart and sick in your soul when you don't live. In your struggle against sin, you've not res yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Worse for Jesus. And, and now what the author does, he goes on to talk to his readers about how they should think about God in their suffering. How they should think about God in their sufferings. It's very easy, suffering like these readers are, being very easy to feel like God doesn't love you anymore. Of course, that would be really discouraging. That, that would quickly lead people to grow weary and lose heart. So how should they think about God in their suffering? The author says this. He says, suffering does not mean that God doesn't love you. Yeah, that's where it's a double negative. Suffering does not mean that God doesn't love you. 
fact, it, it can well mean the opposite. Uh, the author refers back to the Old Testament, to the book of Proverbs. Uh, the writer of Proverbs, uh, he, he's uh, a father talking to his son, and, and he says that God is like a father. Uh, if a father like a father who, who disciplines his son. If a father disciplines his son, it might be painful, but a father disciplining his son is not evidence of a lack of love. No way. If anything, it's evidence that the father does love the son. He cares about what happens to the son. He cares about what kind of person the son becomes. If the father didn't love the son, he wouldn't bother to discipline him. He wouldn't care. The father disciplines because he loves. Verse 5. And you've completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you Sorry, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, quoting from Proverbs, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. The author says to his readers, you've got to learn from this proverb. Think about hardship as discipline from a loving God. If you do that, you will know that God still loves you. He loves you as his own dear children. He wants the very best for you. He wants you to be holy like him. If the readers think about their hardships this way, it won't, won't make things easy. Hardships will still be painful. But at least they'll know the truth about God. They'll know that God loves them like a father and he's in control and, and that should help them. It should help them to, to, to be strong and to press on. Verse 7. <coughs> Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. Four children are not disciplined by their father. If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits and live? They, human fathers, disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. It will strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees, make level paths for your feet, so that the land may not be disabled, but go away. I have to admit, uh, I'm not that great when it comes to disciplining my children. Um, I seem to kind of flip-flop from one extreme to the other. Either on the one hand, I'm tired and lazy, and I just can't be bothered disciplining them, let them do what they want, particularly when they're little, things just run right. Uh, or else I'm tired and always tired, either tired and lazy, or else, uh, or else I get tired and grumpy, and then I get angry with the children and go over the top with discipline. I'm not terribly good at it. It's amazing how well that turned out, really. God's great, despite my best efforts to mess them up. I'm not great with discipline, but still, Still, I can see the point here, can't you? I love my children. I want the very best for them. I want them to become people of godly character who trust Jesus and serve Him faithfully, and so I do discipline them. 
I don't discipline anyone else's children. You'll never hear me rebuking or yelling at someone else's child. Why? Because they're not my child. I don't love them as their father. I discipline my own children. I get what the author of Hebrews is saying here. Discipline is an expression of love. And I've got to say, I've got to say the more I think about it, the more I realize this is a real encouragement. Because just, just think about it for a minute. What are the alternatives? How else could we think about God in our suffering? I guess one way to think about it is I'm not suffering. Uh, well, God still loves me, but, but maybe it's out of his control. He can't stop the suffering. Well, that'd be a little worry, wouldn't it? If God weren't in control, I mean, if God's not in control, who is in control? And, and if God's not in control, who can I turn to? Who can I pray to? What, what possible hope is there that they're going to change? How is, how is heaven going to be any better than earth? If God can't control it, then... Whew, well, here's another possible alternative. Maybe in my suffering, I say God is in control of this and he's doing it to me because he hates me. He's inflicting, in suffering, inflicting suffering on me because he hates me. That's not a bad alternative either, is it? No, what the author says here is very good news. God is in control of our suffering. We can turn to him. He will end it. And he does love us. And through it all, he has a purpose. His purpose in our suffering is the same as his purpose for the rest of our lives. He wants us to share in his holiness, which of course is the very best possible thing for us. There's one big temptation for the readers when they face suffering. They could start to think that God doesn't love them. They could lose heart because of that. And now the author turns to a, a second big temptation for his suffering readers. And the second big temptation is uh, to sacrifice godliness for the sake of a peaceful life. To sacrifice godliness for the sake of a peaceful life. The author starts off by calling on his readers to strive for peace. Uh, peace with each other, peace with everyone, peace with the authorities who they're in trouble with. But peace is a good thing. Uh, we shouldn't seek out trouble as Christians. We shouldn't be troublemakers. We shouldn't be, be um, uh, seeking out conflict. We, we should work hard to live at peace with everyone. Verse 14. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone. Peace is a high priority. It's a good thing. But here's the thing. Peace must go with holiness. Because if you don't have holiness, you won't see God. Now, of course, in many circumstances, uh, being holy will facilitate peace. If you conduct yourself in a godly way, that will normally help you to get on well with everyone around you. But there are occasions. There are occasions when being holy will lead to conflict. Original readers of this letter know all about that. And on those occasions, you just got to put up with it. You just have to endure the conflict. Now, peace is something to strive for, but you cannot make peace an idol. It must go with holiness. Verse 14 again make every effort to live in peace with everyone. 
and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Peace must go with holiness. And now with this in mind, the author calls on his readers to, 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 to pastor each other. The word that he uses is the word that we use for, um, for overseer, pastor or elder, something like that. He wants them, uh, the NLV translates, see to it. But, but it means pastor each other. He wants them to pastor each other in three areas. First thing they need to, to help each other to stick with the gospel. God has shown us his grace through Jesus. Through Jesus we have the free gift of God's forgiveness and of transformation. And they need to pastor each other so that none of them give up on Jesus and miss out. Even if it means there is no peace. Even if it means conflict for the rest of their lives. They've got to help each other to never fall short of the grace of God. Verse 15. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. Second thing the readers need to pastor each other in, they need to help each other to make sure that no bitter root grows up among them. It's actually a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 29 in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 29, the bitter root is when people turn their hearts away from God to idols. The readers need to pastor each other, to help each other, to turn away from idols, whether that be the idol of a peaceful life or anything else, to turn away from idols and hold fast to Jesus. Verse 15 again, I see to it that no one falls the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. And the third thing that the readers need to help each other with is this. They need to pastor each other so that, so that none of them are like Esau. Esau, of course, is, a, is another reference to the Old Testament, isn't it? You know who Esau is? He's the, the twin brother of Jacob, way back in the book of Genesis. We'll actually look at it next year together, really. Um, the author says, uh, talks about a couple of bad things that Esau did. First, it says that he was sexually immoral. Uh, in context, it refers to the way that uh, he wanted to get married. Um, the only girls around were idol-worshipping girls, and so he just married them. Um, and second... The author says that Esau was godless, and that relates to the way that he exchanged his birthright as the oldest son for a meal. Here's the point. Esau put the comforts of this life before the promises of God. Esau put the stuff of this world before the promises of God. He put sex, marriage, Food before holiness. He put having a comfortable, pleasant, peaceful life before seeking to live as God's person. The author says the readers need to pastor each other, help each other to not be like Esau. They need to help each other to put God first before marriage or sex, before food, before comfort or ease or peace or anything else in this world. Verse 16. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. All right. You see what's here then in this passage today? Reason facing conflict with any Christians. They're in danger of getting exhausted and of giving up on Jesus. The author makes two points. First, they need to see their suffering as discipline from God. God is still in control, God still loves them, they need to press on. And then, second, 
It's fine for them to pursue peace with everyone. That's a good thing. They shouldn't look for trouble. They should avoid trouble if possible. But they must not sacrifice holiness for the sake of peace. They need to encourage each other, pastor each other, to stick with the message of God's grace in Jesus, whether that means peace or conflict. They need to encourage each other to turn away from idolatry, whether that means peace or conflict. They need to encourage each other to put Jesus before a comfortable life, before sex or food or peace or anything else. Peace is good, but peace is not ultimate. Jesus is ultimate. And so sticking with him is the most important thing. Okay. Okay, well, let's think about applying this passage to ourselves. I think the application is pretty direct. Isn't that? So many people this morning say to me, oh, that's exactly how I'm feeling in the moment. This passage applies immediately, directly to me. It is easy when we face suffering to think that God doesn't love us, isn't it? And that can make us feel like giving up. Often, when I meet with people, I ask them, I ask them, do you feel like Jesus loves you? I have to say, most people that I speak to, they say, yes, I do. I feel like Jesus loves me. And then what I ask is, why? What is it that makes you feel like Jesus loves you? And in reply, most people will talk about the good things in their lives. They're healthy, family, friends, a good job, plenty of money, success. People feel God's love because things are going well in their lives. In one sense, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, is there? All these things are gifts to us from God, our loving Heavenly Father. He's given them to us so that we'll thank Him and enjoy Him and know His love. But you can see the danger with that way of thinking, can't you? Because until we get to heaven, things are not going to stay great. If you haven't already as a Christian, soon you will face conflict. You will face trouble. Soon you will face tragedy. And soon you will get sick. And soon you will die. And in that process, you will lose everything that you have accumulated on earth. Every single part of your happy life, everything that you have earned, everything that you have gathered, you will lose. You will take not one thing with you. And so if you equate God's love with having the good things of this life, 100% sure you will be disappointed. It will all be taken away. And if you equate God's love with having the good things of this life, well, then you're going to doubt His love when it all falls apart. And you'll be tempted to give up. See the problem? And so it's important that we learn the lesson of Hebrews here. Suffering and trouble of this life, it is not because God doesn't love us. It's part of his loving discipline. It's part of his plan to grow us to be more like Jesus. And so when suffering comes, we need to trust God, trust that he still loves us, trust that he wants us to become more holy and, and press on. Now, a couple of things I want to say about this. I should say this. Um, I'm not convinced that this is the first thing that we should say to people who are suffering. Imagine someone faces a terrible tragedy. Imagine their 
child dies or something like that. Uh, I don't think it's wise to approach someone whose child has just died, who's crying. I don't think it's wise to approach them and go, you're so lucky. You're so lucky that God is disciplining you like this. Wow, he must really love you. Yeah, that's just insensitive. Because that's just bad timing and trivializes their suffering. So that'll be the first thing you say. And yet still this is good stuff to know, isn't it? I mean, way better than the alternatives. It's worth knowing that God is in control. It's worth knowing that he still loves us. In fact, it's vital that we know these things. Otherwise, we will lose heart. And we'll talk about it in Bible study during the week, a couple of weeks ago. And we did this Bible study, and there's a, a couple in our church who've had terrible, terrible tragedy, the death of a child in the last year. And they were saying that this is the thing that they've really held on to. That in the face of their incredible pain and tragedy, knowing that God still loves them, knowing that God loves them, that God died, that's, that's the thing they have to grab onto. Not the first thing you say, but a vital thing to know. Uh, I should also say this. Um, the idea that uh, suffering is discipline doesn't necessarily mean that if we're suffering, God is disciplining us for some specific sin. I mean, it's possible. It's possible that the Bible will do something wrong and God disciplines you for it. Um, but, but it's also clear in the Bible that sometimes uh, people suffer for being righteous, not for sin. For example, Job is an example of that one. Or sometimes people suffer for the glory of God. John chapter 9, man born blind. Or, or sometimes people just suffer because it's the nature of living in a fallen world. So, when we suffer, it, it's, worth thinking, it's worth thinking about, is there some sin I need to repent of? There's something I've done wrong here that is leading to this suffering. Uh, it's worth asking, is this God's discipline for some specific sin? But more than likely, it's just life in a fallen world. And so we need to commit ourselves to go, well, I know God loves me, I know he wants me to be holy through this, and I'll commit myself to try to grow in holiness through whatever the adversity is. Okay, there's point number one. It's important that we remember God still loves us even when we suffer. Uh, point number two then, um, it's also easy for us when we face conflict and trouble for our faith to long for a peaceful life. I know this is true for me. Like most middle-aged men, I just crave a peaceful life. I hate conflict. I don't want to fight with anyone. I hate being happy. I hate being nagged. I hate fuss and bother. I just like harmony and peace and quiet. I should have four children, should I? <laughs> And so when it's a pain to be a Christian, when it means sacrifice, or when it means conflict or hassle, the temptation is there for me, just lose heart, drop the shoulders, I mean, enough, I can't be bothered anymore, just, just give me a peaceful life. But the thing I need to keep remembering is this. God is more concerned about my holiness than my comfort. You know, God actually doesn't care very much if I'm comfortable or successful. It's not what he wants. He wants the better thing for me, that is that I have the sort of holiness which will enable me to see him. 
we must not, like Esau, Lord, put comfort in this life before Jesus. I must not allow peace to become an idol or think that it's some kind of a right. But I need to stick with Jesus even when it means conflict. I need to strive for holiness even when it's hard. Because without holiness, no one will see your life. Well, friend, do you feel a bit like I did uh, in that canoe on the Hawksbury River in your Christian life? Feel like just dropping the shoulders? Are you feeling weary? Are you sick of the struggle, sick of the conflict? Do you feel like giving up? God says to you this evening, says, I still love you. And I want you to strengthen those times and keep on paddling to the very end. That's right. Gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you are a loving Father to us. Thank you that you're using all the things in our lives to grow us in holiness. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we suffer and face conflict and strife and trouble, that you help us to be bold and brave, to know your love, and to press on. 